Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is February the 25th, 2019, and it's just insane to me that the dadgone month is almost over already. What is up with that? Oh my god, we're about to be two months into 2019. Heading into 2020 when we will experience Ass Clown Circus 2020. You don't know what that is. You haven't been hanging around for long enough yet at the Survival Podcast. That's what we refer to presidential election cycles as the Ass Clown Circus. It will be a great one, but we have nothing to say about that today because we are far enough away from that monstrosity to just focus on ourselves and dealing with the reality around us instead of even paying slight homage to federal politics Here's what we got today. I'm going to give you a little bit more on the Timber Frame Pond Workshop, what's coming and why you want to be here. Big announcement. Somebody joined the Expert Council. But since that's the whole segment, I'm not going to really tell you who it is unless you already saw it today. So there you go. We'll tell you when we get there. Uh, I got a new garden soil. This really impressed me. Uh, not to build your whole raised beds with, but like to top dress a raised bed or use for improvement. And it's from, of all people, miracle Grow. But it's a miracle Grow organic product. I'll tell you about it today. Thoughts on battery-powered yard tools. What's going on with the crypto market? Is it ever coming back? Is it bottomed out? Is it going to get worse? Where are we going from here with crypto? Um, buying a getaway property the right way. I'm going to tell you how to avoid some things that I don't even think were thought of when the question was asked. Starter firearms for young folks. Folks? Folks? What is a fope? Starter firearms for young folks, for the kiddos. Uh, a maple mead recipe from a listener that turned out really good. A potential problem with tire changes to be aware of, and I'll tell you how to avoid them and how to find a new tire shop if you actually have this problem and why you should. Uh, just in case, uh, there's a member of our community, Anna Leo, that uses a pseudonym so nobody knows who he is. I know who he is, but you don't get to know. Uh, Justin follows up on his advice to use driver's license numbers to tag tools or other valuables and why it's not really the big identity theft concern that I brought up when I got his initial recommendation. A look at democracy and how well the government really helps people. Now stop. Stop. Stop it. Stop it. Somebody out there right now, I know what you're doing. Democracy, we're probably Stop it. That's not what we're talking about. Relax. I'll even cover your little nitpick bullshit when I get to it, okay? Just stop it. You're like, why is he being that way? Because I'm tired of it. I'm tired of having to say, we are a republic in the form of a representative democracy that both terms are correct, and there is no pure democracy anywhere in the world. Infinity, stop it. Stop it. We're well aware of the... F I'll, I'll let it go. But I'm going to come back with this when we talk about this, even though this is not what we're talking about, because I don't want to hear, you are so wrong, you... I don't want to hear the pounding keyboard. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Maybe we'll have that to be two segments. We'll explain what a republic is and why it's not magical. Yeah. Okay. And we're going to talk about how the housing market is caught in a trap. That's as good as I can do. Yeah, it's caught in a trap, and a couple states trying to do something about it. They're the worst offenders of screwing it up in the first place, but why it's everywhere, and there is no fixing it by government. In fact, why government can't fix it, because it's against the better interest of government and even most of their constituents to fix it now. 
until it becomes really, really bad, and then you have to, and then you're caught in a trap. Yeah, we'll talk about all of that today. Before we do, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one is Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEatinga.com. Man, if you guys want to learn how to really cook great, how to cook seasonally and locally, how to make cooking a life skill, how to rely more on technique and the things that go together and intuition than to just use recipes. If you want a great course that teaches you how to cook from your preps and cook paleo beef and all that other stuff, you want to check out Chef Keith at HarvestEating.com. Make sure to check out his podcast, his YouTube channel, his blog, his spices and seasonings, everything. It's all at HarvestEating.com. Next up today, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. What has Jeff got for you? Berkey Water Filtration Systems, of course. He's also got all the stuff you need to keep your Berkey running, tip-top shape, replacement filters, all that good stuff. He's great at customer service. He will take care of you. I promise you that. I had to throw him off a discussion panel because he was doing customer service in the middle of a discussion panel. I swear that actually happened. He's a great guy, and he has other stuff for your prepping needs beyond just the Berkey products. You'll find it all at directive21.com. That's directive21.com. Please remember, harvesteating.com and directive21.com do do discounts for members of the Members Support Brigade, which is a reason you should, should consider becoming a supporting member of the show. All in all, there's about 80 different vendors, and I am working on a couple more right now as we speak to give you discounts on things you're buying anyway. You can help support the show at $50 a year. Use the discounts. Get all your money back. Win, win, win for everybody. Check it out. Go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. With that, let's go ahead and dig deep into today's topics. Let's start out with the Spring Timber Frame Pond Workshop. Why should you come? Because it'll be fun. Yeah, that's really what I wanted to tell you today. I think you should come, even if you're like, I don't know that I'm ever going to build a pond in my backyard. You will have a blast. You will have so much fun. Our workshops are awesome. And to be able to come to one that's two versus five days long for $300 versus $500, it makes it easier to do. I wanted to tell you a little bit about like some of the things Dorothy and I have been talking about. So we were talking about meals. So um, we always do kind of the first night we do roast chicken. We usually do like we call them cowboy beans and stuff like that. We're gonna we're gonna do that, but we're gonna definitely do uh, one of the lunches. We're gonna do chili with jalapeno cornbread. I know you've had chili before. You haven't had mine. If you have, consider yourself lucky. But homemade chili, Jack's homemade chili, homemade uh, homemade jalapeno cornbread. That's going to be awesome. The second night, with this, the lower head count, I think I can really kind of deck it out a bit for you guys. So we're going to be doing probably, if I can still get it, um, we're going to be doing the uh, the venison and cherry sausage uh, that I gave out little portions of at the uh, at, at the last workshop. But we'll also probably be doing quail with that. Um, and some other really cool things. Like that, that second night meal is going to be fantastic. We're going to be doing barter blanket. If you've never been part of a barter blanket, if you come to this thing, make sure you read all the instructions about it. Learn up on barter blanket. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, the whole thing is going to be a blast. The bigger thing, though, is from an educational standpoint, I think by actually completing a project with me, even if you're not going to necessarily build upon, you're going to learn so much about natural ecosystems. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna have all of the materials list and a breakdown. Uh, and show you like how I estimate cost, et cetera, with this. This is going to be really, really cool. Again, this workshop goes on sale Saturday um, at uh, 10.30 a.m. Oh, I better check that in case I'm screwing that up myself. I want to keep the, the number the same everywhere. See, and I was screwing it up. It's 10 a.m. Central Time. If you, if you get on the website 
at 10.30 a.m. Central Standard Time for this thing, it will be sold out. I, I, will, I will take money bets on that, um, just based on past workshops selling out the numbers of 45 seats in, in an hour. Um, so 18 seats are going to go like that. Uh, so it's Saturday, March 2nd at 10 a.m., uh, and you have to be an MSB member to get in on the first, first chance of registering, which basically means you're going to have to be an MSB member. Like if, if by some miracle Sunday morning they're not all sold, I'll open it up to anybody and everybody. I've always had that policy. It's never happened. We've never had one get open to the general public except for one in a year we did like five workshops. Uh, that was the first year. So since then, they've all sold out within a couple hours. Um, the dates of the workshop, April 25 and 26th, that's a Thursday and a Friday. Students absolutely encouraged to camp over the night of the 26th. You probably should plan on it. Uh, barter bike blanket going late, adult beverages, etc. But uh, 27th, when you wake up on Saturday, you got to get off the property by 10.30 a.m. That's where the 10.30 number came. Again, $300, $150 due with your deposit. Uh, you can make your deposit on uh, on, su on Saturday morning, and then $150 due on arrival, and everything else you need to know will be given to you after you sign up. But if you have any questions, now is the time to ask during the week. Saturday morning, if you're asking me a question about something with this workshop, by the time you get an answer from me, it's going to be sold out. I, It's not a high-pressure sales thing, guy. I just feel bad when somebody says, well, I wanted to know this, and when I asked, and then it's sold out. That's, that's the way these things go. All right, let's talk about another really cool thing. So I kind of alluded to this last week. I even leaked it if you took, like, one extra step to find out. But we have another new member of the Expert Council. And it's one of those ones that when I thought about inviting her to join the Expert Council, I went, well, duh, Jack, why didn't you do that like a year and a half, two years ago? It is none other than Jessica Dixie Mills. Uh, Jessica's been on the show, I think, two or three times. She's come to two of my workshops. She's taught at one. She's an awesome gal. If you're not familiar with her because you're relatively new to the community, Jessica is uh, a gal that did the Triple Crown of Hiking in America. That is a complete through-hike of the three big trails in America. That's the Appalachian Trail, which I hiked about yeah, a little over a third of, and I can tell you I'm impressed with anybody that does the whole thing, the Pacific Rim, Rim Trail and the Continental Divide Trail. Uh, in translation, you're talking about a gal that spent over a three-year period broken up between each hike, months upon months living in the woods using what you could carry on her back. Now, when you do a through-hike or even a section hike, you you stop in places, you resupply and things like that. But that is a lot of living out of a backpack. So she's going to be fantastic for answering questions about backpacking and traveling in the wilderness and stuff like that. But I want you to make I want to make sure that as you guys, you know, have this access to this new council member, you realize how many things that you could ask her, not just how do I hike to Pennsylvania. How about this? Okay, so She has become a very successful video blogger or vlogger um, on her expeditions, and this has helped fund her lifestyle. So that's a whole other can of worms in the side hustle, uh, you know, entrepreneurial online marketing world. She has a very successful Instagram. That's another aspect at the side hustle and building a web presence thing. But let's think about when you're going to go on a hike like that. You have to think about how to provide for yourself for comfort and safety and welfare in an environment where it's not all just provided for you. So that is a whole myriad of things you could ask. Then just this thing about this. You're going to go camping with your two little kids and spend a weekend at a state park. 
Don't you think somebody that figured out how to be comfortable camping on a mountaintop with no systems of support might have some advice for you about how to get information? I mean, I just think this is an incredible resource that's been part of our community for years now, and it was dumb of me not to ask her earlier. The one, you know, I was, I was talking to my wife last week, and it's how this came up, and I'm like, you know, I really should expand the expert council more into some more diverse areas. And she's like, well, you know, Start start at home. Who 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 you know? Do you know that's been on the show? That I'm like Dixie. So sent her an email. She was on board right away. Official announcement today. Jessica Dixie email is now part of the expert council. To see the entire expert council, you can go to the survivalpodcast.com under the about tab. You will see a page that says meet the expert council. Check them all out to send questions for the expert council. Email me Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. With TSPC expert in the subject line, tell me who your question's for, hit return, then give me your question, then hit return, then give me details. Hey, give me some questions for Dixie so I can try to get them to her early this week so we can get her on the air Friday this week. All right, next up, I want this is a real short piece here, but I want to tell you about this new garden soil, I guess is the best thing to call it, that I found uh, yesterday. So yesterday, I decided I had to get shit done in a real way. I had a bunch of stuff to do. I, in my aquarium nerd fish area, I had some tanks I needed to build out. I got that done, and I wanted to get, get outside because it was finally a nice day. You know, sun came out, windy as heck, but it wasn't that cold. And I have four four by four garden beds that I wanted to get ready to plant into. And they needed kind of, you know, fertility boost. That's my full fertility program, which you can find at the survivalpodcast.com forward slash tag forward slash fertility. And I'll put a link in the show notes for you as well. But, you know, basically I had to pull all of the mulch off of these beds, put it aside, do all my fertility aids. And as beds settle over the year, these are, these are wicking beds. So, you know, you want to kind of build them back up. And so I went to Lowe's to get some other stuff, but one of the things I wanted to get Want some more mulch because two of the beds were really low on mulch, uh, but some type of a top dressing soil. And I've been using a product from a company called Eco Scraps, and I really like it. But there and behold, there was a bag, and the bag said upon it a name that I gen generally do not gravitate towards: Miracle Grow, because they're a Scots company, and some of the stuff they make is really nasty with lots of icky gick in it. But it said upon the bag, Miracle Grow Performance Organics in-ground soil, two times more bounty guaranteed. Now, I didn't really buy into the two pounds more, uh, two times more bounty guaranteed because that's a pretty vague claim. Uh, it was a good-looking bag with black and gold. That'll catch your attention. Well done, Miracle Grow. You got the marketing right. But I took a look at the product and what it contained. And I thought, you know what, It's it, it is a certified OMRI, certified organic product. It's designed to go in the ground. It may be a double-duty product for me because if you watch the video I put out this weekend on my fish tanks, I do dirted tanks, and it's nice to be able to buy a product. I, I use native soil for my prop, property, but it's nice for to be able to tell people you can buy a product. And, at, you know, not a lot of money per bag. You could do a lot of tanks with it. If you were doing that, and since it was an outdoor soil product, it doesn't have perlite in it. Perlite's a little puffy white crap that floats up out of your pots. Well, it's really a pain in the ass in the ground, so there's no perlite in it. So I didn't want to be that guy, you know. I went to see if anybody else was that guy. Here's that guy. I hate that guy. Don't be that guy. The person that feels the need to tear open 
the bag of soil to pull it out and look at it so that it dries out and then it spills everywhere and then nobody ever wants to buy that bag. So I looked to see if anybody else had already done it and no one had. And I thought, you know what? I'll take a, I'll take a gamble on four bags of this stuff. So I picked up four bags, one for each bed. I brought it home, cut it open, I dumped it in. And I've talked about this before. When soil is good soil, we as human beings is natural horticulturists. That is part of our, of our, I believe our place in the ecosystem is to be horticulturists, not agriculturists. Horticulturists of the culture of plants. We know. And this stuff, I mean, I haven't grown anything in it yet, right? I just got my hands on it. But I'm pretty impressed. And I would say if you're looking for something to help bulk up your raised beds, put a cap on some beds or something like that, this is the way to go. I would not spend enough money to completely fill like 12-inch deep, you know, four by eight beds with it. I, I just think it's cost prohibitive at that point. But as a soil amendment, which is what it's really made for, or a soil cap, I think it's fantastic. So I'll put a link where you can learn more about it. Um, I do not have an affiliate agreement with Lowe's. And uh, it's this is just, you know, I don't have any agreement, certainly, with miracle Grow. I've said enough bad things about the things they do wrong. I'm sure they wouldn't want me. This is just something I noticed and I wanted to share with you guys today. Next, I have a uh, another kind of out of left field thing I wanted to fill you guys in about. Stephen Harris sent me an email this morning, and he said, he, no intro, no prior email. The generator is down to now $149. You need to get one. I have it all over the Facebook forum. Check this out. And a link. So I, I clicked the link. And it is this uh, sportsman's generator, i.e., your you know main place that they come from is Sportsman's Guide, but they're, that brand is now expanded to where it is it's sold through channels like Home Depot. And this is the Sportsman 1000 watt inverter generator. It is on sale at Home Depot for a hundred and fifty dollars, a hundred fifty bucks for a thousand watt inverter generator. All right, let's talk about what this product is and why I think you should buy one. Number one, I like, I, you know, I can order one and I go to Home Depot and I don't like driving and uh, got to go down there and interrupt my week. And I know that they'll call me in five minutes and tell me to come get it. And uh, I looked on the website and it says ships to your door for free. So I avoid going to Home Depot. And let me explain something. I just mentioned going to Lowe's. I don't have anything against Home Depot versus Lowe's as entities. I don't care about their politics or anything like that. They are box stores where I buy crap at. The two Home Depots near me are absolute nightmares to get in and out of their parking lot. The one of them, you you feel like you're taking your life into your hand the way hands the way it's designed. It's like there are blind spots everywhere, people driving through there like maniacs, and I don't want to go. And the other one's just a pain in the ass to get to. The Lowe's that's near me is like, Super easy in and out, big parking lot, so it's an access thing. Anyway, I don't have to go to Home Depot, and I don't have to pay for shipping. Hell yeah, I'll get one of these. And so, just I want to kind of give you the good about this generator. It's quiet. It sips gas, as in it'll run for six hours at half load on a single tank of gas. Again, it's on sale, super stupid cheap. It'll last a long time of proper maintenance. The tank that'll give you six hours of runtime to kind of clue you in on sip gas, it's only a half a gallon tank. It's lightweight. The thing weighs 19 pounds. Most Thanksgiving turkeys probably weigh more than 19 pounds. It's compact. How about 9 by 8 by 16 inches? It's easy to take camping. 
and it's quiet, 56 decibels. 56 decibels is about the level of a clothes dryer or a normal conversation. I'm probably coming to you right now in your ear at about 55, 56 decibels. Here's the not so good. Notice I said not so good, not the bad. Because there's nothing I can say that's bad. But I want you to understand the limits of a generator like this. It's 1,000 watts, but that's its surge. So if something needs more than a, you know 800 watts to, to start, it, it'll give 1,000. But it can't sustain it. It sustains 800 running watts. That means it will most likely run a refrigerator or a freezer, but some of them have a higher wattage startup. So you'll need to check that if you, that's your plan for this thing. And if you're running something like a refrigerator, it's not going to run a lot of other stuff at the same time. It's kind of a pick your poison. If you can run a lot of little stuff or you can run one thing that's sort of a big thing. And you'll need to check your specs. You'll need to test it. It's not In Stephen Harris' language, it ain't a lightsaber. It most likely won't run a microwave. It won't run most coffee makers. Okay, We're talking about 800 running watts. Those devices are generally pulling somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,100 watts. All right? What it will run is lights. For me, it will run pond pumps. My average pond pump pulls 87 watts. Translation, this little thing can sit out on my backyard and keep all my fish alive and all my ponds all by itself while my big generator runs my house. That's That was like that plus a backup is why I bought it. Um it's wonderful for car and truck camping. You know, if you if you kind of tuck it away and put a little surround blocking around it, it's not even going to bother anybody unless, you know, you're camping where you're right next to somebody. So you've got power. Charging batteries is what it's fantastic for. If you have a battery bank, you know, you can keep that thing charging up while you're running backup power off of the battery bank. Um, it's great for what it does well, but it's not going to run half your house. Now, I use a 7,500-watt Troy-built generator as my main generator. It's eight years old. It still starts with one pump, and I still bought one of these. And I have other generators, and I still bought one of these because it's so cool, it's so cheap, it's so reliable, and it works so good. And at 149 bucks, I can't really recommend this one enough. Now, this is a chance for an education on generators and the differences between generators. So I posted this, Stephen posted this, and all kinds of people started saying, hey, the 2,000-watt one is only $10 more. Why wouldn't you spend 10 bucks more and get double the generator? And I, So I'm looking at the Home Depot website, and they have not a 2,000-watt inverter generator. They have a 2,200-watt inverter generator with 1,800 running watts, and it is $419. So I'm like, what are you people talking about? Somebody finally gives me a link, and what they're talking about, Sportsman Generator Line has inverter generators and converts conventional generators. They're talking about a conventional Generator, 2,000 surge watts, 1,400 running watts, also from Sportsman. It's on sale for 160 bucks. But this is not an upgrade of the one in the post. It's not a straight upgrade anyway. This is a standard form generator, not an inverter generator. It weighs almost three times as much. It's not gas efficient. It's not compact. And it's 12 decibels louder, which is a big difference when it's running with no load, and when you put a load on it, that number goes up. Is it a good deal? Yeah, it's a good deal. Is it a smoking deal like the one on the 1,000-watt inverter? Nope. If I had no generators and these were on sale, might I buy one of each? Probably not. I would be more likely to buy two inverter generators than one of each. First, if you're going to go to a non-inverter generator, you might as well go to something like 
um, a Troy belt, maybe a little smaller than mine. I have a link to one that's $350. And you would need four of those 2,000-watt generators to equal it because it only has 1,400 running watts. It's not a 2,000 running watt generator. It's a 1,400 running watt generator. And so you're talking about double the expense per watt. The money advantage is not there. The beauty of these small inverter generators is they're small, light, and quiet, and sip gas, and frankly, that they're inverter generators in the first place. And one big thing that inverter generators do that makes them so fuel efficient is they run as, as heavy as they need to for the load on them. So if you're running very little power out of them, you might hear, right? And then you put more of a load on them, and that would go from, so they adjust based on how much is being pulled. Where conventional generators just kind of run nonstop. They just kind of run full tilt bore, might be a little revving up and down, but overall they just run flat out, they burn gas the same whether you're running two light bulbs or where you're running a window unit air conditioner on them. So for light loads, you really want to go with an inverter generator. And to me, as soon as you, if you're, as soon as you go, I'm not by, I'm going to, I'm going to get more bang for my buck. I don't want an inverter generator. I don't care if it's noisy and big. Well, you might as well go up to something that provides at least 5,500 watts because they're all loud. They're all heavy. And a 2000 running, you know, a 1400 running watt conventional generator doesn't burn much less gas. Does some, but not much less than one that's running at 5,500 watts. So it just doesn't make sense to me to buy small conventional generators when, when we now live in a world where you can get a 1,000-watt inverter generator for $150. When those generators, even the cheap versions, were $600, I could make the case for it. Now I can't anymore. So I wanted you to know about that. I have a full write-up on the blog. I'll put a link in the show notes if you can't find it. Um, but this, I don't know how long this deal is going to run. They have a limit of five. Uh, that tells you how good, when they put a limit on how many generators you can buy, you know they know they've made a hell of a deal. So just wanted to recommend that to you. Let's move on to another thing today. Uh, things we've got a lot of cool stuff today. Um, I, I got an email, my first actual feedback, right? The direct feedback for the show anyway, today's feedback show. Uh, on on lawn tools, power tools. That's from Michael. Michael says, what would you or the community suggest for battery-operated yard tools? Looking for a weed whacker, blower, and trimmer. My wife wants to do more, more yard work, but is not going to try to operate my gas-powered tools. They're heavy and complicated for her. I was looking at DeWalt only because I have DeWalt tools as it is. I am always looking for ways of getting my wife involved, especially if it's a non-emotionally driven purchase. Thanks, Jack and TSP. Michael. Michael, okay, I love the idea of you getting your wife involved in the maintenance on the property. I think it's a great thing. Um, you, you mentioned non-emotionally driven, so I think that we need to make sure that we are not using our wife's willingness to maybe help out a little as justification to spend $1,000 on tools. Let's start out with the DeWalt as a product line. You can do worse. You might, in some areas, be able to do better but you can't do much better. That's my opinion of DeWalt. I am not quite as brand loyal to DeWalt as I was 20 years ago. I do think they've had a few slip-ups as they've moved into the new you know, 20-volt, 40-volt, 60-volt line. I think their refusal to do anything about the fact that people that are part of their installed base can't work their chargers, and they keep getting dinged in negative reviews because they won't simply say, fully seat the battery in the charger in one motion. 
uh, on the charger is stupid. I'll post a video that I tried to do to fix this. I have been in contact with DeWalt multiple times, and the answers I got back were basically, thank you, but we don't need your help. You do need my help, DeWalt. You are getting trashed on Amazon because you don't provide solid, clear instructions on how to use your chargers for your lithium-ion chargers. And I know some of you are going, what is he talking about? So when you take the battery and you put it in the charger for the new uh, batteries for DeWalt, and the new, they're several years old now, they, they, they slip in just like they go into the tool, and they don't quite lock, but you have to snap them in as though you were snapping them into the drill. And a lot of people that have watched my video have said, you're so stupid, I can't believe anybody would know that. Shut up. Shut up. The reason people don't know that is because people are brand loyal, and people like me that have used DeWalt for 20 years have had a battery charger for 20 years that you took the battery and you dropped it in the charger when it charged. And when you just drop that battery in there and you don't snap it in, guess what happens? Sometimes it'll start charging. A little light goes blink, blink, a happy charging light. And then it'll stop blinking at some point, usually after you've left, and your battery will be barely charged, and you'll be all angry. You'll think you'll have a bad charger. And so you call the wall, and they'll go, we'll replace it, because even their customer service people don't know to tell you this. So that alone has made me a little less friendly to DeWalt. Like, because I hate companies that are stupid enough to repeatedly kick themselves in the balls and not fix it. However, they still make really good shit. And since you have an installed base, you could do a lot worse than DeWalt for this tool need. However, hmm, how do I put this delicately? Sometimes spouses, being well-meaning, say, well, if you did this, then I would do that. And they even believe it until you do this, and then they have the opportunity to do that, And then that isn't as much fun as they thought it would be, and they really never wanted to, but they wanted to make you happy. So my wife's not in that category. She likes to do some yard work, and she has the same issue. She does not want to carry my big-ass heavy tools around. I don't blame her. I got her a very inexpensive Black & Decker weed eater, and that's the main thing she does is weeding, which is great because it's the one thing I just don't want to do. And it's... It's pushed to its limits on my three-acre property, but it still does what needs to be done. And they're so cheap that when you burn one up, you can just buy another one, and they come with a charger and a battery, still pretty cheap. So whenever she does burn one up, which about every year and a half she'll burn one up, I just buy her a new one, and we just keep building our battery charger collection. And it's gotten to the point now we have so many batteries and chargers Because uh, we've been using these things for years. It's the same thing. It really hasn't changed. But I just buy her a bare tool one for like 45 bucks. Black & Decker makes that weed eater and a leaf blower and a charger and a battery for like $109. I'm not saying don't get the DeWalt stuff. I'm just saying you might consider get that stuff. It's really lightweight. And if you have a suburban home, half acre lot, something like that, It will last for a few seasons, at least. And see if she actually enjoys doing it. And then if she does, then you say, well, let's get you a better weed eater. Get the DeWalt weed eater. And it keeps going. The hedge trimmers, right? Let's get the hedge trimmers. So I don't know how big the maintenance is here. Right? So, you know, maybe it's not a good idea. But I wanted to throw out there at least as an option. As far as the DeWalt tools go, I have links to the stuff that I would buy if it was up to me today. 
And you asked about a leaf blower, and you said you have heavy tools, so you probably already have a leaf blower, so you probably like leaf blowers. I'm going to tell you when it comes to tools, I don't own a leaf blower. I don't want a leaf blower. I don't like leaf blowers. I think they are one of the most obnoxious, noise-making tools on planet Earth, and they are primarily for people in HOAs that want their sidewalks to look pretty or for, you know... $10-an-hour employees to walk around in parks and annoy the people trying to enjoy the peace of the park. I just don't get the obsession with blowing leaves around. But if you do, I think that DeWalt makes two pretty good products. They actually make a really high-end commercial-grade one, 60-volt. They make a 40-volt, but they make one that uses the standard 20-volt, which is what most DeWalt hand tools use that you probably have that's probably sufficient and small enough and light enough that your wife would want to use it. So I'm okay with them. I think they've come a long way. And as a DeWalt guy, if these tools existed, when my wife first decided she wanted one, because I know when she says she's going to do something, she's going to do it, I would have bought the DeWalt weed eater, okay? Because I already had batteries for it and stuff like that. But DeWalt didn't make those tools back then. And I got to say, the Black & Decker, the, 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 when I look at the DeWalt, I hadn't actually got my hands on one yet. But it looks like it probably is significantly heavier than the Black & Decker one. The Black & Decker one is a fine tool for what it is, as long as you're talking about you know, grass and light weeds and stuff like that. It uses a very thin, um, a thin uh, string, a thin string. And if you go with that one, do not use anything except the diameter string that it is rated for. It will not feed worth a damn And one of the beautiful things about the um, Black & Decker one is it is self-feeding. You don't have to tap it and bump and run or anything like that. It just feeds out string as it needs to. Um, but if you don't want to spend too much in string, she's going to have to learn how to wrap string, which my wife had no problem learning how to do. Because if you buy it in the pre-wrapped spools, it's like three times as much as buying the string and wrapping it yourself. Uh, they've made the spool disposable in that tool, and, and that's just because, hey, They sell it for $60. Bucks. So if you sell something for $60, bucks, you got to make it somehow. You, they make it on the string. Inserts is how they're actually making their money on that tool. Anyway, I like it, and I like the idea. So, Michael, do what you want with the information I've given you. Anybody some ideas on cordless yard tools? Comment in the show notes today or send me an email, and I'll put it in a follow-up show. Um, Greg asked me what my current thoughts on the crypto market are. He said he started accepting crypto at his brick-and-mortar business. And currently at a loss for their value. So he took it in the past when the market was up. And so he wants to know, like, is the future of crypto pathetic? Should we consider it right now? Longtime listener, MSB member, Greg. Okay, in any investment, you have to fight your instincts. <clears throat> Back when crypto was really hot last year, I was saying, I think this makes sense to learn about. And I was saying things like, You know, go buy a couple hundred dollars, learn how it works, spend it, use it, but be careful. I always said any money you put in crypto, if you wouldn't gamble with it, don't do it because what you're doing. But people were getting in like gangbusters while the market was at all-time highs. So the market dwindles down and nobody wants to touch it. Hmm. So to me, this is a great time to look at Crypto is an investment, not just something to learn about. But you still have to be careful. I'm going to say the same thing. If you wouldn't put the money 
on a blackjack table, don't put the money in crypto with a caveat. And that is, I won't put any money on a blackjack table. I'm giving you a metaphor. If it's not money you're willing to lose, don't do it. I do think we're about to see crypto turn a corner. And I think we were close to that happening not so long ago when the great hash war came, which I don't have time to go into today. But if you look at it this way, with Bitcoin still over $3,000 a unit, after all of the misery, after all of the hardship, and when Bitcoin was a dollar, not that long ago, people said, it's a scam, it's a bubble, it's tulip made, and here it is. Here it is, still doing what it does. And I think what happened in the great run-up is that people forgot what the point of cryptocurrency is. It is not so somebody can take $5,000 they shouldn't be spending anyway, buy a bunch of crypto with it, sit back, and in a year later buy a Lamborghini. That is not what cryptocurrency is supposed to be. And I said before the big wash came, there's a whole shitload of stuff right now that people think is worth money that when this is over, you'll have a few winners and a whole bunch of people that are never coming back. And even that group has hung on better than I thought it would. Because it was every other day a new coin that did something different that really wasn't any different was coming out. Everything had gone up. The, the shittiest shit had gone up three, four, five, six-fold in a year. And that's what I did a video back then. I said, this the bloodbath is coming was the name of the video. And I got to admit, the bloodbath got bloodier than I ever expected. What I see crypto is, is a way to take away control from the banking system and give it back to individual parties doing business with each other. And I think this washout is good. I think it chased a lot of speculators away. And I'm still going to say, I think that long term, there is huge money to be made in crypto, but you can't let that be the goal. That could be one of the many reasons that you put a little bit aside in a contingency fund. All right? Because... I'm still back to this. Sooner or later, with this stuff being around as many, we're talking a decade now, Bitcoin. Still worth money. Still can't get rid of it. People with lots of money still pushing for approval. We are going to get into a world where people truly can invest retirement money in cryptocurrency. And specifically, the big dog in the pool, which is still the big dog in the pool, Bitcoin. It's going to happen. If that happens... And every person in America decides they want every person with a retirement account on average. So not everybody does, but if you averaged it out, everybody with a retirement wanted a quarter of a Bitcoin. Just, just as an oddball thing to stick in their IRA. There ain't enough to do it. There's not enough to do it. And what we've seen with Bitcoin still holding in the thousands of dollars a unit, you, you can talk shit about it. You can point the problems with it. You can't kill it. You can't kill it, you can't, and if they could kill it, trust me, in this wake of this bloodbath, if it could be killed, it would have been killed. It is like a vampire. You can stab it, you can stake it, you can shoot it with silver bullets, and it's stronger than a vampire and a werewolf put together, and it just keeps coming back. And if you would have told somebody five years ago that today Bitcoin would be over $3,000, they would have mocked you, because they did. And the only thing that makes Bitcoin a, quote, you know, air quote, failure in anybody's mind today is because it skyrocketed up to like 15 grand. 
You take that year of stupid growth out and put and just remove that and then look at a graph over over eight years and you don't see anything but a success. You don't, and that's most of the solid projects. You don't see anything but a success. So my view is that cryptocurrency is one of those technologies that is too far ahead of its time. And so people are not using it as it was intended yet. But I do believe that they will. And the more government exercises capital controls the more that will be the case. The more people become dissatisfied with the state, the more that will be the case. So I, if you're looking to make money, don't go buy $5,000 worth of Bitcoin tomorrow. If you're looking to understand a technology and to use it and to hedge by taking a small piece of what you're willing to risk and putting it into cryptocurrency, get into cryptocurrency, now's a good time. Think of how much more you can get for how much less today Than you could have, you know, two years ago. It's it and so, how do you win with investments? If you're going to trade, you buy when no one wants to buy, and you sell when no one wants to sell. That's that's what I can give you on that. Let's move on to another one here. Um, Mike says, "What should I look for in a piece of property for my sanity?" Hello, Jack. I live in a cesspool known as the Bay Area of California. I'm so sorry, Mike. Uh, I'm married happily, and we have twin boys that are a year and a half old. I've tried hard to persuade my wife that we should leave the area, but I don't think that will be happening anytime soon. We've talked about a compromise, and we came up with buying a piece of property that will be our escape from society. Ideally, I'd like somewhere to be able to take my boys to camp, hunt, and fish. It definitely will be at least a three-hour drive from our home. I'd like to put things on the property with attract wildlife like squirrels and deer and quail. We haven't even decided what part of California would be in, so anywhere from Northern California to somewhere in central part of the state. Uh, also, what about storage structures like sea containers or storage shed? If the shit hit the fan, it could be a bug out location, but that wouldn't be the main its main existence. Uh, good, okay, good. Don't buy a property just because it's a bug out location. You buy a property and it's a bug out location. If this is too broad, I'm not exactly making sense. Please let me know. I'll try to ask in a better way. Now it's good. Uh, I really would like your input, by the way. The boys listen to you every time I feed them. Thanks, uh, Mike. Okay, Mike, so I want to start out with a suggestion that's probably not what you expected to hear. Um, well, maybe it is, too. So, number one, I have done entire episodes on this subject, and I'll try to find you one or two, but if you go, if you go to the site and search for, like, remote property, bug out property, bug out location, uh, you will find entire episodes that go detailed into this. Um, next, in those, I always have said the following. Pick an area that you think makes sense. Find a really nice place to rent a cabin or a decent hotel. Rent it. Go have a vacation. Wait a few months. Plan a long weekend. Go do it again. Do it two or three times. And then ask yourself, can I truly see myself making time to come here? You know, am I actually going to get here six times a year, every other month? Because if you're not, unless you find really the right real estate investment, that's also a place you can go to, you might end up wishing you didn't do it. Because here's the deal. You can get a lot of hotel rooms or cabin rentals for the, the, the one-year cost of buying a property. 
And with the new SALT limits on real estate uh, taxes and interest, etc., there's not the tax advantage that you used to have there either. So you've made this really big commitment when you've bought a piece of property. And I'd also say while you're there on your, your at least your first you know, mini vacay, you can look around at what's available property-wise, do a little bit of driving around and looking, but spend most of your time being there. Spend most of your, like, if there's a little town, like, what's available? Is it is it what you're really looking for? How are the people? Are they that much different than the Bay Area people? You need to go elsewhere. Like, so make sure that the area is right first. If you have to take ten little mini vacays to find the right area, you will be fortunate for having done so. When I first started looking at Arkansas, I looked up in the northwest corner by Bull Shoals and the Buffalo River, and there's some really beautiful things about that place. But in going there twice to vacation, I determined it was not for me and my wife. It was too far from here and her family, and it was too little as far as a town structure and things like that for what my wife wanted. And Hot Springs, even though we ended up coming back here, was a much better choice. And we were talking about the other day, had her father not gotten sick the way he did when he did and had very severe issues with Alzheimer's and stuff, and she hadn't come back here to take care of we might still be living there. I think we ended up better off, but we might be. I mean, we really did like the place. So that's number one. Number two, you need to decide whether this is going to be a remote piece of dirt or a place with like a home on it. If it's going to be a remote piece of dirt, you're probably going to actually pay more for it than you think you will. Um, and when you go there, you're going to have no infrastructure. That's not to say not to do it, but, you know, and then maybe you're looking at something like an RV or something. Um, as far as storage containers, they're better than nothing, but not much better than nothing when it comes to keeping stuff that you don't want stolen on a remote piece of property. They've always had weaknesses and limitations, but... When they started making cordless angle grinders, they became almost useless. Because I can have a lock off of one of those things in about a minute with an angle grinder. And so they'll slow people down, but people also know that stuff's in there. And there's probably valuable stuff in there or you wouldn't have invested in it. So it's more about it'll keep stuff dry and protected from the elements than it will from too late and from animals. Like... A bear is not getting in a shipping container. A deer, is a rat, is not getting in a shipping container. I guess if there's the right hole somewhere a rat could. But in general, a locked-up shipping container is, is, is animal-proof, and it's weather-proof, you know, short of tornadoes that flip them upside down. You guys don't have a lot of those out there. So I think it's a good thing, but do not think it's going to keep people from stealing your shit. Now, a couple guys walking through the woods where they're not supposed to be that just happen along by it, They don't, that aren't out hunting stuff to steal with an angle grinder in their backpack, that they don't remember why it's there when they get caught. Um, yeah, it'll stop them. So it's better than nothing. But anybody that like, hey, look, dude has a place. Dude has a storage shed. Dude's not there. Anybody like that, they're going to go buy or borrow or steal an angle grinder and cut right into it. So please understand and know that. My rules for property that's remote, if it's got a house on it, good neighbors that are line of sight to your property. That's what we had in Arkansas. And so if you try to break in my home in Arkansas, you're likely that somebody would shoot your ass. So it didn't happen. right? We actually did have a break-in before everybody kind of went up in their, their, their security level. Somebody broke into 
like they watched the place obviously because like no one was there. Like all five neighbors were gone at the same time. And I had rented the place to my niece and her husband, and everything we had there was stored. And I'm just going to say a way you couldn't find it. Like if you got in the house, it looked like, well, there's a refrigerator in here, some carpet, ceiling fan. I mean, there was, it looked like there was nothing there at that point because they had moved out very recently. So they, you could tell they got in, they looked around, they just left. Um, but they did get into the, one of the really, the, my, kind of my favorite neighbor, I guess the way they put it, house. And that was when they're like, the hell with this. We put a, a, a road a road gate in. They got a couple German shepherds. Everybody went on higher alert, and we never had a problem again. Um, and because I had those line of sight neighbors, not only was it a deterrent for somebody to steal, but if something did happen, I would know about it right away instead of later on. So you got to kind of balance that all out. Overall, I think it's a good idea. Since I've done whole episodes, I'm going to refer you to some of the other episodes But I'm going to say, please, anybody in this situation, go there at least twice. And when you're sure it's the right place, go there a third time. And see if you can really enjoy the place, if it really is what you think it is. Because, you know, it's the same thing I say about RVs. RVs can be great. But if you look at buying a $20,000 RV that you then have to take care of, You know, haul. I never enjoyed towing mine, especially when, like, you end up on a shitty, heavy road construction, three-lane part of the interstate, and somehow you get boxed in. You've got a semi on both sides of you, and you're pulling a freaking RV. It's not fun. And you're hitting potholes that are jostling all three of you around. And every time you try to back off, they seem to back off. And, you know, I don't like backing big trailers either. So, you know, finding a place to put it. Like, so I know this is not your question, but how many... Really nice hotel slash cabin experiences with no obligation can you have for that same twenty thousand dollars? And you know damn well when you go to get rid of that RV, you might get seven grand for it. So say say fourteen thousand dollars, and the answer is quite a bit, quite a bit. So really think before pulling the trigger on things like this. It's a great goal. To put it in perspective, I have been open to buying a second property ever since we moved back here. I ain't found one yet. It's got to be right or I won't do it. It's got to work for me, my wife, uh, timeline. I got to have the time to use it and enjoy it. It's either got to produce cash flow for me, where if I only use it a couple times a year, it doesn't matter because somebody else is buying my real estate for me, like, you know, do an Airbnb type thing. Or it's got to be so convenient that I can get out there at least every month and really get something out of it. Or, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather pay for a deer hunt than own property that I hunt deer on that cost me 20 times as much in the long run. That's how you got to look at it. Um, next up, Sean asked me, what is a good youth firearm for children to learn on? I used to have a nice Rossi youth trifecta chambered in 22, 223, and 410. Like a dumbass, I sold it because at the time my child was a newborn. I've been looking, and I can't find them anywhere. Looking at the Rossi website, they appear to be discontinued. Any ideas on similar firearms would be greatly appreciated. Take care, Sean in Maine. Um, I was a real heavy um, fanboy, I guess, of the NEF Handy Rifle Series and the Rossi Break Action stuff for a long time because they're cool. You can take around, and you have one gun, you shoot three things with the NEF Handy Rifle. You could send the barrels in and get them back, and you could have you know one gun that shoots 20 calibers and all But in the end, I found that I only did a very little bit of hunting with them, and 
those kind of like break action rifles tend to actually be kind of heavy for their size, and they are gen the the youth models are generally the stocks on them are not really ergonomic, and they you know the the, the calibers you mentioned two twenty two 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 three and four ten probably not an issue, but I got my son a youth model NEF when he was younger that shot two forty three and it it put a beating on you he like the first time he shot it. He had tears in his eyes, and I could tell, like, he's not that weak of a kid, you know, like, this is just wrong. So, instead of trying to make a combo gun, my formula for kids is, let's make sure, first of all, we're buying this gun for them and their needs, not so we can go buy another gun and have an excuse. That's that's number one. Uh, number two, the best starting gun for any young shooter is a .22. And I think looking at something like one of the Marlin youth models is the way to go. Marlin, to this day, still builds one of the best-built 22 platforms on the planet, or best-built 22 platforms on the planet. Um, I don't see taking a brand-new shooter and giving them a semi-automatic gun. I never want to do that ever. I think it's a bad juju. If you don't go with a single-shot bolt, you can still make a single-shot bolt into a single-shot bolt. If it's a bolt-action gun that uses a magazine, you just they don't need a magazine, right? And then you can't load more, or we can block the magazine or something like that, so it's a little bit easier to load, and then it can change over when we have more confidence. But even if it has a magazine, at least that bolt needs to be worked before that second shot goes. That means there's less potential for some sort of dangerous occurrence, With a new shooter, that makes the teacher much more calm. And since the teacher's calm, the student's calm, and everything goes much better. So that's where I think we start out. We start out with a 22 youth model. And then just like I advise the guy that says his wife wants to go and do all this yard work, before you go dumping a grand into this thing, let's make sure this thing that we think is going to happen actually happens. Because I can tell you, I've gotten emails from people, how do I sell all these youth guns because I went out and bought a whole set of shit For my kid, and after one trip to the range, they don't really care. I'm hoping they come back around, but the way it looks, by the time they do, they won't be using this you know, youth model stuff anymore. So let's do that first. Let's get a foundation now. Uh, as far as a shotgun, I think the best thing that a kid can learn on with a shotgun, some people are going to disagree with me, is a Remington 870 youth model in 20 gauge. I think they'll have a much higher percentage of hits. I think a 20-gauge and a the 870 youth model 20-gauge is very well designed from an ergonomic standpoint, unless your kid's unusually large for their age and maybe they need to step up to the full-size model. Um, but the recoil, my son, who did not want to touch that NEF because it was a 20-gauge 243, Did not want to touch that, that NEF with the 20-gauge barrel on it either. He shot an 870 20-gauge just fine. I also got him a 410 single shot. He shot that just fine too. But he had a much higher hit percent rate, and it did not affect him adversely at all. If they're really young, and that 20-gauge might be a bit sharp, nothing wrong with a, with a 410 single shot. I wouldn't try to make the combo gun thing work out of it. We can step up into things like 223 and, and center fire rounds from there. But most kids, I think you'll find that if you, if you take the progression of a decent shotgun and a decent rifle, by the time they're old enough to need to be shooting a center fire, because to me that either means you've just progressed to where you're ready, 
and because it's a sporting thing, or you want to go hunting. You know, you're looking. I, I know in Texas, kids can hunt really, really young. But most states, you know, you're looking at hunting licenses for kids starting at about age 12. The average 12-year-old can shoot a full-size rifle. And if anything, down from there, you know, you're ready to step into something like a Model 7 or something like that. In, in like a .243 or 7MM08, if you want to keep the recoil signature down. Or even just going to, uh, you know, a .30-06, .308, that's going to last them their entire life as, as a good round. And you can buy the youth, low, you know, downloaded ammo where it's more like shooting a 30-30. That's the progression that I would recommend you really consider. And as I always say, training with things like airsoft and air rifles first makes a lot of sense. There's a lot. I had a guy recently write me, and he wanted to buy a, a full metal, full-size airsoft training rifle for his kids. And I'm like, go buy a $30 BB gun. Shoot pellets out of it because BBs bounce more. You know, it, like, don't go spend 300 bucks on something that's not going to work for your kid. Because that was his budget on this. I'm like, go spend 30 bucks, take $270, put it in a jar, and add to it for the future for their firearms fund. And if they end up not being a firearms, you know, fanatic, then spend it on some other investment in their future. You know, start out small and simple always and progress as the skill and the psychology and the desire is there to actually progress. Because we as parents believe that our kids are just going to love what we love. And I can tell you, my son knows how to use a gun. He kind of likes guns and all, but he's just not into it. It's just not really his thing. You know, I was like, man, you're so lucky because I've offered to take him on guided hunting trips and stuff like that. I couldn't, I couldn't beg my way into that when I was a kid. He just doesn't care. And that's why I'm like, you don't do college funds for your kids either. You do life establishment funds. Your kid may not want to do it college. They may be extremely talented in some way that putting the money into a college bucket designed for college will make it more expensive to get the money back out of that bucket. You know, maybe like they want to go fly helicopters. My kid didn't do that, but it was something he considered. And if we wanted to use the money we had stupidly put in a 529 plan, we would have paid penalty to get it out. But you can go get a degree in bitterness studies from the University of Jackoff, and that's fine, right? But if you actually wanted a life skill out of it, now you've put it in this, this particular type of fund, you can't get it out. Always think that way in everything with kids when it involves expenditure. Start small, work into it, and I'll say this about the Marlins. I don't know the most current Marlin Youth 22s, though I'm probably about to start looking at them for my, my grandson. Um, but the old, like the Model 25Ys and stuff like that, they were a, a short-barreled version of their big brothers. The receiver, the trigger, everything was the same. And what that meant was you could take a 25Y, which was the 25 youth model uh, 22, that was a single shot. You weren't going to be able to fix that part of it. But you could take one screw out and take the model 25 stock, and it dropped right in. You put the screw back in, and it worked. You had an empty magazine well. Big whoop. Why would you want to do that? Because I did. I took my 20, model 25 apart and put his gun in it, when I would go like scouting where I could shoot squirrels and stuff like that, because it was short as shit, it was still legal, but it, it, it took like four inches off the length. No, it wasn't four, six inches. It's a sixteen. That's it has a sixteen-inch barrel on that. Uh, the minimum that you could have and legally be a, a rifle, and the uh, the full-size one was you know, twenty. Yeah, twenty inches. Four inches off the overall length. 
and it was lighter, so it made a really great kind of beating around the bush gun, and then you could just take it out and put it back in. So if your kid wants to kind of nostalgically use that gun from their youth, if you got something like that, you could always switch the stocks out on it, just a thought, because I couldn't shoot. I took What happened was I took his out, and uh, as it was one time like that, and I was like, I just can't shoot it well because the damn length of pull is so short, you're just not on it right. So just a little additional thought there. Uh, another Michael. You know, there's too many Michaels. All right, I'm not putting down any of you guys that are named Michael, but everybody calls Michael Mike, first off. There's too many Mikes in the world. Stop naming your kids Michael. You're like, well, they're going to call him Michael. No, they're not. They're going to call him Mike. Everybody calls everybody named Michael Mike. There's too many of y'all. We've had like five of them today, and none of them are related. Come up with a new name. Anyway, Mike... Mike on the blog says, um, and I'll say, so this is Michael Dixon. I figure since he published his name, he's okay with it going out there because uh, it's in a public comment. It says, I made maple mead right after a standard one on returning to Australia from your workshop. Oh, I remember you, dude. You can, you can keep the name Mike, man. You're cool with Mike. Anyway, he used, and this is he's from Australia, so he's going to use um, metric numbers. He used a one kilogram of honey, which is about 2.2 pounds, if I remember my metric conversion right, two 250 milliliter bottles of maple syrup, ME05 mead yeast in a five liter batch. Worked out really well. Definitely not overpowering a maple flavor. So I just wanted to give out that recipe. And Michael, I want to again thank you. I've talked about how people have come to these workshops from all over the world. Um... This guy came from Australia, and we had a blast with him. This was like two big workshops ago that he was here, and it was really fun. Uh, so another kind of shout-out for the workshops. But, hey, man, hope you're enjoying things in the land down under. Send me some uh, kangaroo jerky or something sometime. Uh, next up, uh, Shanna says, A word of advice regarding roadside, ti roadside tire changes. When you get your vehicle back from the automotive shop after any sort of tire maintenance, rotate, balance, brakes, etc. has been done, make sure they didn't put your lug nuts on so tight you cannot get them off. I got a flat on my way home from work and managed to pull off into a nice open parking lot. I pulled out the spare and jack and tried to change the tire. The lug nuts wouldn't budge, not even with my body weight on the wrench. So I got to spend an hour and a half waiting for AAA to come bail me out. Just goes to show even with tools and knowledge and a safe location to get the job done. Something could still go wrong. Food, water, most of a tank of gas and TSP episode listened to kept it from being cold and miserable experience, but it sure screwed my schedule for the rest of the day. Thanks for all you do, Shanna and Tucson. Okay, this is a huge issue, and this is something that's wrong on so many levels. If your tire shop puts your lug nuts on, to where when you take a tire wrench and a cheater pipe, you can't undo them. Then they are not doing what they're supposed to do. And it's actually potentially dangerous and could cause lug, lugs to shear uh, under the right circumstances. I worked at Firestone for a very brief period of my existence. And this is 25 years ago. And even back then, when a vehicle came in, we had impact wrenches. And we would just use them, you know, the way they are to take take the lug nuts, lug nuts off. When we put tires back on, we had a series of, of basically their torch, uh, torque extenders, and they were different colors. And we had a chart. You'd look up the vehicle, Audi A5, whatever, and it'd say gray. You pick the gray one up, and that went on the lug wrench, 
and a socket on the end of that. And when you zipped it down with that zip gun, it would set that torque to whatever the torque pounds were supposed to be for that vehicle. If you go to a maintenance shop, all you got to do is look through the window. And if you see guys with a zip gun and they're just zipping lug nuts back on, I don't care what they do to take them off. If they're just zipping them on and they don't have any kind of anything that's controlling the torque, and because there might be some technology I'm not aware of, I would ask a service rider that's going to do, hey, I noticed they're back there just throwing things on, uh, torque on the lug nuts, what's up with that? If he doesn't have an answer, find another shop. Because if they're screwing that up, what else are they screwing up? Every nut, every bolt on a vehicle has a torque spec. We used to make a joke when I was in the Army, like, what kind of torque spec do you use on that? We'd say it's a German torque spec, and the person would say what if they'd never heard it before? You'd say it's Gutentite, okay? Um, there are certain things on a vehicle that you can just basically tighten by hand, and you know, there's field repairs and what have you. When you take an impact tool and you're zipping shit on, That tool has so much power beyond what it what is necessary that if you really Rambo it, you can just twist shit off. And if you have somebody doing that with the lug nuts on your vehicle, you have no idea if they've done some damage until the damage becomes evident. Now, like I said, I haven't been in that business for a long time. I don't know. Maybe they have you know impact wrenches now that have a little switch on them, and you just dial it in. I, I don't know. But anywhere you get work done, you need to observe what's going on. You, like, how are you guys making sure that you're not you know torquing this 90-pound uh, spec to 180 pounds? How do, how do you do that? Because if they don't have a good answer, again, you find a new shop. Because even the podunk... Firestone I worked in almost three decades ago, they did that. My dad ran a tire shop in the 80s and always torque spec lug nuts on. And this was a guy that, you know, worked freaking 363 days a year, 14 hours a day, and just got shit done. And he even, like, even in that environment, like, you, you can't do this. This isn't right. So it's more than just an inconvenience. But thanks for bringing that up. Definitely something to check out. By the way, there are impact wrench-type tools that plug into a cigarette lighter attached to a battery that are useful in these situations. As always, an air compressor and a plug kit will solve 90% of flat tire problems and get you off the road so you're not in this situation. But there's things you can hit with a tire where it's not possible. I hit a piece of angle iron once. You can put all the plugs you want there, and it's not fixing it. Uh, next up, Justin Case, who is a law enforcement officer who uses Justin Case as a pseudonym to protect his real identity on the blog and on the Facebook group and all that, so he can speak freely as a law enforcement officer about things that maybe other law enforcement officers would not want to hear, um, told us recently when we were talking about marking tools for work that you can take and put, for instance, if your driver's license number for Texas was 0123456, TX0123456 engraved on your tool. Then, if any law enforcement officer anywhere ever comes across it, they can enter that into a system, see if that's been reported as a stolen item. 
or even if it hasn't and they find a whole bunch of your shit because it's going to come back to you, you're the only one with that number, and they know when they see that, they know what it is. And something's just not right. I found this guy. He's got a toolbox full of shit. He can't really explain where it came from or why he has it, and it's all got this weird number on it, and he told me he doesn't know what that number is. Maybe you sold it. Maybe somebody gave it to him. Who knows? But they can get in touch with you and say, hey, Mr. Case, I uh, found a whole bunch of this stuff. And he said, nah, that stuff was stolen. And, you know, you get your property back. My concern was identity theft on that because I've always thought of a DL number as being like an SSN number, something you protect. Here's what Justin said about that. Follow up to Jack's question about using or marking your property with your state and driver's license number. As far as making your DL number public or advertising it somehow, I would recommend against it. But if the concern is some form of identity theft, then it only becomes useful to criminals when they have your DL in conjunction with more useful information, such as your name, date of birth, social security number, and address. Now, back when DLs were commonly requested for writing checks, it could have indeed been used in that fashion, but those days are nearly gone. I personally haven't come across someone having their identity being violated due to a DL number, but I, I but have worked many instances where someone had their DL obtained by someone else who then used all the information off the DL, which we know is your name, date of birth, address, and still SSN in a couple of states, which is disturbing personally that it is very useful in stealing identity. So some states still put your social on your driver's license. That's stupid. So if somebody gets the whole license, he's saying it's a lot bigger deal than somebody just getting a number. Uh, so when people mark their property with their DLs, it's not very useful to criminals unless they also have your other information and they are also actually committing those types of crimes or know someone who does. Usually the crooks that steal property normally stay in their own lane as far as most of their crimes, though I have seen a few expectations, exceptions that is quite rare just in case. It makes perfect sense. And I thought about it after I, I spoke to it uh, last week and thought, like, so let's say I get a hold of this wrench that was stolen and I have these, these driver's license numbers on it. I don't know who that is, when they were born or where they live. And it's not like criminals have a database where they can enter it like police officers do and find that out. So I just don't think that it really is the risk that I thought it was. So thanks for the follow-up. And it makes sense. And I guess anything is a risk-reward ratio. Like, what is the what is the reward in having that on there if somebody steals it and it gets found? You get your shit back. What is the risk? It seems quite minimal, so thanks for that. Next up, Jerry. We need more Jerrys in the world. You know, I just said there's not enough Michaels. If, you're, if you have kids coming, you know, a new, new, new kid coming along, and you're thinking of a name for him, and you're thinking Michael, consider Jerry. Just saying. So Jerry says... Since we live in a country that is a flavor of democracy, before I answer Jerry's question, we're going to talk about that. Remember my little snap out in the beginning? In theory, any government program should be supported by at least 51% of the population. Hmm. And many government programs pay out in benefits far less than 50% of the money they take in. Therefore, if our government got out of the business of helping people, more people could be helped by people who actually support those programs. As an example, if a program pays out a rate of 25% of its budget by eliminating the program and returning the money to the taxpayer, if 50% of the people gave that money to the beneficiaries, twice as many people would be helped. Of course, this assumes that the support program average uh, both numbers of people amounts to the same of taxes paid. The math breaks down when those that pay the most of taxes do not support a program willingly and only do so with forced taxation. Let's start off with we are a flavor of democracy. 
This is important because to explain what he's saying and to give you my thoughts on it, it's important that you understand that. So when anybody says the United States is a democracy, there is a group of you who go, we're not a democracy, we're a republic. I want to tell you how asinine that objection is. And I know what you're saying, and you're right in what you're saying, but I'm going to tell you also why it's asinine to point it out that way. There are approximately 120 countries in the world that are republics. I'll say that again. There are approximately 120 nations in the world that are republics. You can look it up if you don't believe me. 120 nations are republics. What people mean when they say we're not a democracy, we're a republic, is that we are not a direct democracy. If one more person says we do this than doesn't, doesn't mean that we do it. We are a representative democracy in the form of a republic, or a republic in the form of a representative democracy. You can say it either way you want. There are exactly zero countries in the world that are direct democracies. There are zero towns in America that I'm aware of that are direct democracies. I do not know of a single direct democracy on planet Earth, so your objection, while accurate, is redundant and stupid. And being a republic is not magic. Do you know who else is a republic? The Democratic Republic of North Korea is a republic. I know they're not really democratic. They actually kind of are, but they are a republic. Their government meets the definition for a republic. Do you know what else was a republic? The Union of Soviet Socialist Republic. Back in the 80s, some of you that are too young don't remember when we used to call them the Russians, and then somebody would say, they're not really Russia, they're the USSR, and they include more nations than Russia. Yes, everybody knows that. It was the same type of thing. So our nation is a democracy. It is also a republic. I am aware of the protections of the minority under a republic. I understand what the framers of our Constitution did when they set up our particular republic. I get it. But it's still democracy. Because we still elect our members that represent us in a democratic process. Stop the stupid shit. Because anybody that has to be informed... That just because a nation is a democracy doesn't mean that if just more people want something than don't, that you get it. Isn't going to listen anyway. Stop it. Stop it. For the love of God and all that is holy, stop the nonsense. Anyway, so what Jerry's trying to point out here is that since we are a republic in the form of a representative democracy, in theory... There should be at least 51% of people that are in favor of anything government does to quote-unquote help people. That if, if really 60% of people opposed it, the clowns that represent us couldn't get elected. Now that's not actually true. Because they do all kinds of shit that people don't even know they're doing. And don't have time to pay attention to they're doing. But generally the stuff is like helping people. You, you, yeah, you know, for, you know, helping old ladies get flowers or something. Yeah, I'm for that. Okay. Okay. So then, if government has at least 50% of people that say, I am, I would willingly support this, and they don't pay out at least 50% of the money they steal, we'll get to how that works out in a second then we would be better off just eliminating the program and let the 50% of people that are willing to pay into it, pay into it. And the important connotation there is many government offices that exist to help 
Define the victim however you want to in this blank. Orphans that need flowers, little old ladies that need to get across the street, poor people that need food, however you fill in that blank. Pay out in the neighborhood of 25% of the money they steal. That's how inefficient they are. 75% of the tax money allocated to feed the orphans goes to pay the people that work in the feed the orphans bureaucracy. That doesn't even mean the non-governmental organization that gets money handed to them to do their mission. I'm talking about Upgrade, who is the big pimp that is the federal government, going to get his money. So he goes and he takes $5 million. Let's do $10 million. Nice round 10 number, easy to work it out. $10 million, Upgrade takes, and he's going to give it to the feed the orphan bureaucracy. So he gives $10 million to the Feed the Orphan Bureaucracy, which is a department of the federal government we just made up. And, of course, there's much more than $10 million, more like $10 billion in their world, but just $10 million. We can get our heads around this. So then that organization has a director, and then he has a staff, and then they have sub-staff, and then they have sub-staff. And then maybe when that federal government bureaucracy reaches its pinnacle and it's got all the federal employees they can justify sticking in there, then they work in conjunction and they distribute their money to the states. And each state has its own little department, and then they get some piece of that money, and then that money goes there down to the people that it actually is supposed to help. And that if the government takes in about $10 million for that particular department, which again, a much smaller number than reality would be, about $2.5 million actually ends up on the street. About $7.5 million, or 75% on average, of government programs goes to pay upgrade and his associated pimps all the way down the line. Now, you could say well, these are hardworking people, they do their best. I'm not picking on them. I'm just pointing out what Jerry pointed out, the efficiency. It's about a 25% efficiency. Most charitable organizations, with the usual big-name offenders not included, pay out in the neighborhood between 35% and 55%. So if they take in a million dollars, a half a million dollars goes to work. Many organizations pay out more in the neighborhood of 70%. There has to be some cost associated with running programs like this. Somebody's going to, like, what do you do for a living? I make sure that this happens. Well, they're not going to do it for free. Um, you know, working for free is the definition of slavery if it's not by choice. I love what I do hosting the Survival Podcast and teaching and, and entertaining and educating every day. But if I couldn't make a living from it, I couldn't do it the way that I do it. It would have to be you know, a weekly show or something. I have to get paid because I have a life that I have to, you know, I have to provide for. So I'm not a parasite. So if you want somebody to you know, be a director, they've got to get paid a director's wage. So I get that. But the government is so bad at it. This is how bad the government really is at it. If the government just took all the money every year, And just had an automated system that just automatically deposited the money equally back to everybody that paid taxes. We would it would be still redistribution of wealth, but the country would be far better off. You just pay your taxes, and then you get a, a real refund. It could be more or less than you put it in, depending on how big of a cog you are in the wheel. I'm not saying this is a good idea. In some ways, that would be a more pure form of communism. But economically, everything would be better. 
If the government employed people that just stood out on the street and just randomly handed out money, we would be better off economically than we are with all these programs that supposedly help. That's how bad they are. That's the point that Jerry's making. Now, what he is saying, to be honest, because you got to, when you make a case like this, you got to be honest about the other side of it. The, the biggest taxpayers, if they didn't participate in, in these, these forms of charity and giving, then that kind of breaks the system. Which is, but that's completely converse to what you're told. The rich don't pay their fair share. The richest people pay the most taxes. You can do the math and figure out, I'm not even going to go into it over and over again, but the, the top 10% of earners pay 90% of the taxes, guys. Everything you've been told about the rich people not paying their fair share is a lie. It's bullshit. And it, and it assumes things that are just stupid. In other words, it assumes that a guy that's a, a, a billionaire CEO actually has all the money that he's claimed to be worth. Most of that money is in common stock. It's not income to him. It's common stock in the company. It's just piece of the company. If you ever own a company, you know, you can own a company that's very successful and makes a lot of money, and you don't necessarily get a lot of money out because it all goes to pay your employees and associated costs and everything. Your stock in that company doesn't mean anything until the day you sell the company or you sell the stock. It's, it's meaningless to your actual value and, and your ability to buy shit. And so we, we talk about people as though you could just go seize $4 billion from this person. Well, to do that, you'd have to completely liquidate their company, which means you can't because the stock includes future value of the company. So if you liquidate a $4 billion company, you'd be lucky to get a billion and a half dollars out of it. And then all those people don't have a job anymore, and that company's gone. And whatever it did and whatever it supported is gone too. This is how class warfare is just completely and totally flawed. And, and there's really no way to kind of get through to certain people that's how this works. And it, it's, it's how this all spins back to, well, if we didn't make these rich people donate the, to, to give money in, in taxes, would they still do it? The most, philanthropic the most philanthropic people in the world, adjusted for income, are billionaires. They give more money than anybody else. That's so they can avoid taxes. <laughs> It doesn't work out dollar for dollar, folks. It really doesn't. What I have seen, with very few exceptions, is the more a person has, the more they're willing to give. It's just the way it's always seemed to work out around me. So, obviously, I'm not a fan of government, and this final story will explain one of the reasons I'm not a fan of government, because government doesn't just create problems. Government creates problems that are so bad that... They're almost impossible to fix, and fixing them will hurt millions of people. So they never get fixed, but <laughs> this is just insane. Eventually, they will have to be fixed, and when they do, the pain will be worse than if we had bitten the bullet and fixed them. And every day that goes by, that gets worse. And nothing could be more true uh, than housing when it comes to that. Uh, especially right now in a lot of places. I've kind of spoke to this before, so I'll abbreviate it a bit. But John and Moore Park, who sends me tons of stuff, he's like a one-man research team, uh, sent me an article from the New York Times, I won't, or Los Angeles Times, that I won't read, uh, but you can read it yourself if you want to. It's in the show notes. California lawmakers uh, make aggressive push against local development restrictions. So 
This is citing the increasing cost of housing across California. Bay Area lawmaker wants to sweep away a host of local restrictions on development. And you can read the full story if you want in the show notes. So <clears throat> basically what they're saying is, okay, housing's out of control in California. And adding to it, all these local governments put in all these additional restrictions in addition to all the restrictions the state of California puts in. So we want to keep our shitty restrictions in place and make all these local uh, groups stop restricting things. That's why John says in this, who's the villain and the hero here? Um, and this is also a part of why I hate government. And when people say, but local government's best. No, local government's the worst. Local government is the most oppressive government you can possibly have. And I know people are like, that doesn't make sense. There's no way that a city of Sheboyganville can be more oppressive than the federal government. Oh, but they can Because every law that the federal government says applies to you still applies to you in the city of Sheboyganville. The city of Sheboyganville, which is a made-up place that I made up myself, uh, so nobody feels called out, um, cannot pass a law that says the federal government can go piss off. We don't have that law here. They really can't. The only level of government in our system that can attempt to do that is the state. And generally, they don't. Okay. So then the city of Sheboyganville lies within Sheboygan County. So Sheboygan County has laws that apply to Sheboyganville citizens that Sheboyganville City didn't pass. And then let's just say Sheboyganville is in Idaho. So then the state of Idaho has laws for the city, the citizens of Sheboyganville that there's nothing the city can do about that apply to the citizens. And then... The federal government has laws that apply to the cities of Sheboyganville. So the only thing the, the city of Sheboyganville can do when it passes laws and restrictions is further restrict liberty. That's why the, the more local and smaller the form of government in a Republican government, which is what we have, a Republican system of government, the more onerous the government is. Because what it's saying is, All the laws that the county, the state, and the federal government have are not enough. We need more. So in this case, in California, the state, who's passed a shit ton of these restrictions themselves, is saying to the local government, Thou shalt not encroach thy further upon thy citizenry, for thou art causing thy problem, that is, the houses are too expensive. All right. In what seems like a completely unrelated story that I happen to notice on Facebook, Oregon is very close to passing statewide rent control. It says, and I, again, I'll link to the thing, so you, but you know, uh, rent cannot go up more than 7% per year plus inflation. That's it. You can't increase rent. Well, the cost of housing goes up. The cost of being a landlord goes up. So if you do that rent control, then it's very easy for landlords, as soon as they get rid of whatever tenant they have right now, by whatever means they can legally do so, because they also try to attempt you from getting rid of, an, uh, getting rid of a tenant, Uh, for a variety in a variety of ways in this legislation beyond just what the headline says. Um, but once I get rid of my tenant, I'm better off just not renting it. I'll just sell the property. If you're going to make it where I can't be profitable as a landlord, I'm just, just going to sell the property. But what they're saying is thy housing in the, in the state of Oregon is too expensive, and in thy rent holders thou art the problem. Well, Why are people renting instead of buying? Because thy property continues to go up in value, and, and thy state, thou, and thy upgrade, that is thy state and thy county pimp, thou hast stolen thy money in the form of property taxes based on this new assessed value that you don't want me to rent. See, it's a, it's a problem. 
And this is where we're at. And, and states like Oregon and California and New York, especially in the five boroughs area, et cetera, um, we're seeing it first. But this problem is everywhere. The problem is that when governments place restrictions on property and governments don't allow development to occur, because the way it should work is the market should dictate how many new houses we build this year. But instead, government interferes with the, the invisible hand of the market and says, to do this, thou must do these things. And builders say, screw that. I'm not doing that, or I'm going to do less of that, or I'm only going to build houses that are worth this much to make it worth doing. And then county governments say things like, thou shall not build new houses that are not at least 2,500 square feet. And that means all the entry-level 1,300, 1,600-square-foot houses are not growing in number, so all the young people that need a ha first house... They can't get that house. They got to compete for the inventory. So that drives their price up, which is what happened here. But this is why the government cannot and will not solve the problem of the growing cost of housing in America. Because it can't. And I don't just mean because the government's incompetent. I mean, like, if you said to me, Jack, you are now governor of the state of Texas, fix this problem. And you have emergency dictatorial powers. You can do anything you want if it's about fixing this problem. I'd be like, are, are you sure you want it fixed? Are you sure you want it fixed? Because even many of you who think you want it fixed probably do not want it fixed. Because what I'm going to say to you is, uh, you know that house you just paid $250,000 for two years ago? When I fix this problem, oh, and I can, I can fix this problem. When I fix this problem, your house is going to be worth $170,000, which is what you probably should have paid for it in the first place, but you couldn't because the market dictated otherwise because we, we screwed the market. Because as soon as I lift all these restrictions and say, you know what, counties, you can no longer say that you, that you cannot build houses unless they're at least 2,400 square feet, that anybody should be able to build any freaking house they want as long as it meets you know, state and local code, state and, state and national codes. You can't say that there's a minimum size. If somebody wants to build a 500-square-foot house, they can build a 500-square-foot house. If they want to build a 1,300, it's their house. They're going to live in it. Shut up. Leave them alone. As soon as I say, you know, you, you, here's all this myriad of restrictions that has to go away. Let's let people decide. Let, let's, let's stop subsidizing mortgages to a stupid level and make people actually have to have a down payment. Let's stop letting lenders say, well, you can't build that kind of house because it's not square. Well, you can build it, but we won't loan against it. If you want a loan in the real estate market, you do a fair appraisal on the house. You don't say it, you can't do a fair appraisal because it's passive solar or it's earth contact or it's dome. You don't get to do that. If it's an 1,800-square-foot house, you compare it to other 1,800. You fix all this shit. The value of real estate plummets. If new houses cost less than old houses, then what happens to the price of old houses? They come down. So there's this dream, and government always talks about this dream like they really want to do it, where we can make housing affordable for people again. But then what happens to all the people that can afford their unaffordable housing? What happens to the value of their, their property? Oh, and here's a thought. When Upgrade wants his money, and he's been taxing your property as though it's valued at $250,000, and you can go down to the county tax office and clearly show that you're not some arbitrary bullshit that both of you argue about. You can clearly show that your property is only worth $170,000. 
The appeals process makes them reassess your property at that value and drop your taxes. And what happens when that happens across the board? There you go. So how can this be fixed? How many people that would be all for it as soon as they found out their $200,000 house would be worth $120,000 the next day would still be for it? Caught in a trap? That's where we're at. And here's the thing. Governments can only pervert markets for so long. And the next financial explosion is going to be a real estate explosion unlike the last one where people just couldn't afford the price. We actually, that was, a, that was an opportunity to fix the problem when property values plummeted. What the government should have done when that happened was nothing. There should have been no TARP. There should have been no bailout for the banks. There should have been nothing. The market should have been allowed to self-correct at that point. And that was the time to remove restrictions. Instead, when they got cash-strapped, it's when all the counties, states, governments put all these restrictions in and made the problem worse to shore up their balance sheets. We are financially screwed into a world where they have to sustain elevated cost of living from a housing standpoint as long as they can and keep kicking the can down the road. And how long could that happen? It could be 20 years. It could be five. It could be a hundred. I honestly don't know. I think there'll be indicators of when we're coming to a head, but the question really is how delusional are people in their faith in government? It's the lack of faith in government that will eventually make people say, we don't want this anymore, and be willing to hit the reset button and take their medicine. And how willing are the American people to take their medicine in any walk of life? They're not at all right now. So ah, all I can say is be careful with what you do out there, folks. And with that, let's go ahead and wrap the show up. Um, I, I talked about the generator today, so I do not have an item of the day. Uh, that is the item of the day, even though I don't, you know, I don't have a affiliate agreement with Home Depot. I don't know if they even have such a thing. I just brought that to you, so that's the item of the day. But remember, you can always support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. See all my reviews there. Let's talk about our song of the day. Interesting choice for a song of the day today uh, by, uh, by John Adam, who does these, uh, the musical programming for the show. This song is called Deportee, and it was originally written by um, it was really originally written by uh, Woody Guthrie in 1948, but it was released by Arlo Guthrie, which was uh, Woody Guthrie's son in 1974. The song was called Deportee, and this is about the immigration issue. It's like this hot button issue today, as though it's a new thing. And what John Adams says. Found it interesting that this was a big issue back in 1948. The more things change, the more they stay the same. What this song is about is immigrants who came to the big farms in California uh, with the promise of high-paying jobs to basically work the fields and work for almost nothing and saved up every penny they could. And a particular group of them that were being sent back to Mexico on an airplane that crashed, and they all died. And... When this was reported to the American people by the American media, the total number of names of these men given, I should say men and women given, was zero. 
They didn't name a single person who died. And that's what the song's about. These people being willing to come here to do work that nobody else wanted to do and then being treated like criminals for doing it. I know a lot of this audience leans to the right on the political spectrum. And in many ways, as an anarchist, so do I, right? Fiscally, big time. Um, but we have been lied to about this whole issue with illegal immigration and the conflation of drug, uh, drug kingpins and all. That's American government is so corrupt when it comes to drugs. Human trafficking, of course, I mean, like I said, if you are abducting children and putting them into the sex trade or something like that, I will throw you into a wood chipper and turn you into compost, and I will never in my life, to the day I lay on my deathbed, if somebody says, do you regret that? Nope. Get me another one. Fire the wood chipper up. Throw another one in there. I mean, I get how horrible those things are, but the average immigrant that comes here, legally or illegally, is not here to traffic children or to sell drugs. They're here for a better way of life. That doesn't mean that our nation shouldn't have borders that are controlled, but that's that's still true. And when we start having people chanting stupid shit like build the wall, deport them all, you're not going to deport 12 million people. You're not. And when people say, well, Americans are willing to do those jobs, no, they're not. There's a lot of jobs that illegal immigrants do that Americans would be willing to do if they paid better because illegal immigrants weren't there. And that means your cost for those services would go up. But it wouldn't destroy the economy. It would really be okay. There are a lot of jobs where that is true. There are also a lot of jobs where it's not true. I don't care what you pay. Americans are not going to line up to pick lettuce in California or oranges in Florida. They're not going to do it. There's even stories, I've read reports where the government tried to like bring high school workers in to do it, and it just doesn't work. There is a work ethic out of that demographic because they have so little otherwise. Now, what people say, well, if we got rid of all the welfare and stuff like that here, then people would get off their ass and go do it. Yeah. Yeah, they would. <clears throat> so I'm going to tell you what I think the average American would like to see. Not the hardcore on either side. I think this is what the average person would like to see out of our immigration policy. One, if you come here, you qualify for no welfare. Now, people like me would say, I want it all gone anyway. But you do not qualify for welfare, and your children do not qualify for welfare of any kind. If you stay here, your third generation qualifies for whatever American citizens do. Even if your second generation becomes citizens, that's the deal for the opportunity that we provide. You don't get shit. You're expected to support yourself and your children for two generations before you get a dime out of social services. With the exception, if you're paying into Social Security and getting robbed like the rest of us, whatever's available to get back, sure you get that. But as far as like food stamps and you don't get nothing. At all. Infinity. Number two, if you commit a crime that has a victim, You shoot somebody, you stab somebody, you rob You are immediately sentenced to prison for whatever you would get for that. And at the end of that, you are deported with prejudice. Meaning, if you return here, you go to prison for life. We don't deport you three times. Once you commit a crime with a victim, now, getting pulled over with a, with a pocket full of, of, of bud is not a crime with a victim. 
you commit a violent crime or you steal from somebody, you take somebody's property or you harm them or you, you know, anything like that, if you kill them, I think you should go in the wood chipper, anything like that, you are already here provisionally. Once we punish you for that, you are not our problem and we do not want you to be our problem ever again. I think if the government actually did that, we would solve this problem as far as 90% of people are concerned on both sides of the issue. And they won't. And unlike the property problem that they can't fix, they won't fix this. It's not they can't, they won't. And the reason they won't do it is because then they can't divide you and have stupid people making stupid chants on both sides of the aisle. So don't look forward to fix this either. But I do believe that most people, I think one of the biggest things you can do to cure your prejudice of illegal aliens is stop having them be some group of people that you don't know. So I mean, one of the reasons I have a much softer stance on this than a lot of people, I guess, in my sphere, for a long time I worked in outside plant construction in Texas, and a lot of people that worked for me were illegals. Now, I didn't make the decision to hire them. My boss made the the owner of the company made the decision to hire them. Basically, I ran the company. He owned it, so I did what he said. But they were the hardest working people I ever had around me. They worked like dogs. They lived in shitty conditions with way too many people. And that's what people complain about. But do you know why they did it? Of the four guys that worked for me really for a long period of time on, on, on a series of projects, three of them were married. They hadn't seen their kids or their wives in forever. And they sent 80% of their incomes home. And I know we think that's an economic problem because it's, a, it's a bleeding money out. I'm not saying it's good or bad for the U.S. economy. I'm saying how many people are willing to live away from your family for 10 years or more at a time, see them maybe once every two or three years, live on, work on a shitty wage, live in terrible conditions so that your family will have what they need. Is that all of them? No. Is that most of them? Probably not. Is it a significant portion of them? Sure. Sure. This problem could be fixed in a way that would make most of the people reasonably happy. And if it's that simple, there's only one reason your government won't fix it. Well, there's multiple reasons. One, they love you divided. But number two, there's an awful lot of money making sure that problem doesn't get fixed. They want access to that super cheap labor that not only is super cheap, but can be abused. The real problem with the corporations that back this stuff and keep this illegal immigration problem in place in the first place is they don't just want cheap labor. They want cheap labor that they can abuse and take for granted because that labor is afraid to do anything about it. That's the real problem, guys. It's kind of what this song is all about. And think about a whole plane load of people dying and no one caring enough to name a single one of them. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. The crops are all in, the beaches are rotting. The oranges are piled in their creosote dump. They're flying you back to the Mexico border to pay all your money to wait back again. My father's own father, he waited that river. They took all the money he made in his life. 
My brothers and sisters come working the fruit trees, and they rolled the trucks till they took down and died. Goodbye to my one, goodbye Rosalita, adios, mi amigos, Jesus y Maria. You won't have a name when you ride the big airplane, and all they will call you. Some of us are illegal and others not wanted. Our work contracts out and we have to move on. Six hundred miles to the Mexico border, they chase us like outlaws, like rustlers and thieves. We died in your hills and we died on your deserts. We died in your valleys. We died on your plains. We died in your trees and we died in your bushes. Both sides of the river, we've died just the same. Goodbye to my one, goodbye Rosalita. Adios, mi amigos, Jesus y Maria. You won't have a name when you ride the big airplane, and all they will call you will be deportees. The skyplane caught fire over Los Gatos Canyon, like a fireball of lightning, it shook all our hills. Who are these friends, all、oh, scattered like dry leaves? The radio says they are just deportees. Is this the best way we can grow our big orchards? Is this the best way we can grow our good fruit? To fall like dry leaves and rot on your topsoil. Be known by no name except deportees. Goodbye to my one, goodbye Rosalita. Adios, mi amigos, Jesus y Maria. You won't have a name when you ride the big airplane, and all they will call you will be deportees.